I wanted to tell you why it's so good to be here. We, we Lori and I were talking about this. We really consider this uh, a church family for us. We don't get to see you very often, but whenever we come, it feels like we're, we're home with you guys. And it has been a long time. I knew Pastor Hesterberg from the earliest days, and uh, when he was here starting the church, got to know some of the families then, got to know uh, many of you through uh, Presbytery, and of course, being here uh, with you, not only to preach, uh, be a part of your worship service, but a uh, number of meals together. Uh, it's been just a great part of our lives, and so thank you. And I want to tell you, too, um, so I, I know you've known that I've been battling uh, sciatica, back issues, and there was a time when probably for a month and a half, uh, I didn't I wasn't able to sleep. I had such excruciating pain. And uh, it was during that time that uh, Pastor John called and asked if I could uh, come and uh, preach. And uh, that at that time, there was no way. And, uh, but I remember those nights when he assured me that the church would be praying for me. Uh, those nights when I couldn't fall asleep until maybe 4 o'clock out of just exhaustion. I would get maybe a couple of hours sleep, but I, re I would recall some of the people who were praying for me, and that would encourage me. You were one of the ones that came to my mind. So thank you. Thank you. Our text today is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, reading the first 11 verses. And it's not a book that I've often preached on. I think I've preached on it twice in my entire uh, ministry, and probably for good reason. It's, it's a tough book. So we're going to tackle it, and uh, brace yourselves, because really this is a little bit different approach, because we're, we're going to look at the entire book. Trust me, you won't be here past 3 o'clock, but... Um, but it will be a little bit different, so um, I hope that you're able to follow along. Let's read together from God's holy and inerrant word. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. 
there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I'm dating myself, but one of the Beatles, John Lennon, once said, when I was five years old, my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. When I went to school, they asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wrote down, happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. And I told them they didn't understand life. Was John right? Did he understand life, do you think? Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes would answer, no way. And the reason why he would say no way is because he looked for happiness in every conceivable way, in every conceivable place, and all he could find was meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. So aren't you glad you came for this inspiring message this morning? You may be thinking, this guy who wrote Ecclesiastes is bad news Brian. If, and if that's your conclusion, then you wouldn't be alone. In fact, some have questioned how these passages could square with the rest of Scripture. Here's just a few of these puzzling uh, verses from Ecclesiastes. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Why am I dis depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to all of them. Aren't these odd, surprising statements? And one of the ancient rabbis said of Ecclesiastes, O Solomon, where is your wisdom? Not only do your words contradict the words of your father David, they even contradict themselves. Some have questioned whether Ecclesiastes should even be in the Bible. But not so fast, because Ecclesiastes is a difficult book, but it breathes life to us. Ecclesiastes is a realistic book, and that's why it sounds so much like your life and my life. And Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book, so it teaches us how to look at life, how to, how to view life. So this morning I have two main points to explore with you. The first is life under the sun is wearisome and is never enough. And then we're going to look at something else. Life above the sun is rich and satisfying. But before I get to those two points, it's important to understand who's writing this book. So check out verse one, uh, verse one chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Well, we're getting some hints there, aren't we? The NIV uses the word teacher, and the ESV uses preacher. 
But the Hebrew word is koheleth, koheleth. I'm going to be referring to the preacher, the teacher this morning as koheleth. And in Greek, the Hebrew word for koheleth is, guess what? Ecclesiastes. So now you know where we get the word Ecclesiastes for this book. But again, who is Koheleth? Verse 1 says he's the son of David, who would be King Solomon. And so much in Ecclesiastes does match what we know about Solomon. For example, it says he acquired great wisdom. He took on huge projects like building houses, gardens, parks, reservoirs. He had concubines, lots of them. He amassed silver and gold. Well, that sounds an awful lot like Solomon, doesn't it? So many have concluded that this book is Solomon's autobiography in which he tells how he tried to live without God. There is one respected evangelical scholar. His name is Trevor Longman. And he's taken another approach. First, he says, he points out that Koheleth is never mentioned by name in Ecclesiastes. In contrast to Solomon, who does identify himself as the author in the book of Proverbs. Secondly, only the first two chapters really seem to describe Solomon. Thirdly, Longman points out that it seems very unlike Solomon to criticize these wealthy kings and their officials who are opposing the poor in chapter 5. And lastly, and, and uh, probably one of the stronger, strongest points is that most of Ecclesiastes is written in the first person. I saw this. I did this. But at the beginning of Ecclesiastes and at the end of Ecclesiastes, uh, the voice changes. It's written in third person. So why the change from third person to first person to third person? Who is Koheleth? Who is the preacher? Those are some strong points to consider. And this is where Tremper Longman really helps me to get hold of who Koheleth is. He says that in ancient times it was very common for people to write fictional autobiographies. The writer would take on the persona of someone who is fairly famous, a real person, and he would be a narrator telling the persona's personal history to make a spiritual point. So wouldn't Solomon be the perfect person to make the spiritual point? If you lived life without God in the picture then yes, it would make a lot of sense. But life is absolutely meaningless, he says. Absolutely. That makes total sense. So here's what we discover in Ecclesiastes. The main spiritual point is life without God is meaningless. Now we know that there is a narrator who starts and ends uh, the book who states that the main spiritual point in chapter 1 is life with God is all about fearing God and keeping His commandments. That is in chapter 12. 
Now we know that the narrator used Solomon's life to illustrate the search for meaning. Sol Solomon could only find frustration, and no matter what he tried, it was never enough when he lived life under the sun. So if you can keep that basic framework in your mind, I think it's going to help you understand Ecclesiastes and make more sense of it. Uh, at least it, it has for me. So let's dig in. Koheleth is on a journey. And we're going to join Koheleth on that journey this morning. And the first thing we see is this. Life under the sun is frustrating. What do you mean, under the sun? Well, that phrase occurs 26 times in Ecclesiastes. The first time it's used is here in verse 3. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? It's one of the keys, really, to understanding Ecclesiastes. So think about it. Where in your own personal experience do you find life to be frustrating, making no sense, and feeling like no matter what you do, what you say, or how, no matter how hard you work, it's never enough. Everywhere you turn, no matter where you are, everywhere the sun shines frustration. Under the sun is the view that sees everything in life without God. This is the perspective that Koheleth has. But I think it's a double perspective. It's a perspective that says to the person who doesn't know God, look, this is what life is like without the Lord. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's frustrating. You have no hope. Don't expect easy street and wonderfulness because you're not going to find it. But it's also a perspective, a message to the person who does know the Lord, who does know God. It's a stop sign, if you will. Stop. You're, the re you're redeemed for something better in life. Walk with me. Know the joy that I bring to life. Experience a sense of purpose in your life. Find in me what you deeply long for. Because as believers, we can be tempted to live for a time under the sun. And let's look a more closely at life under the sun. Specifically, let's look at verses 4 through 7. Generations come and go. Then Koheleth uses elements of nature to, to illustrate what he means by generations coming and going. He uses, for example, the sun. It rises and sets day after day, month after month, year after year, century after century. The wind, it blows in a never-ending cycle with no sense of completion, with seemingly no sense of purpose. And rivers, they flow in the sea, not in the sense of water evaporating into the clouds and then returning to, to water the earth, but rivers flowing into a sea and yet never overflowing. I wonder if Koheleth might have been thinking about the Dead Sea. I have a huge map in my office at home, and it's so starkly huge, the Dead Sea. And you can see how the 
oftentimes I used to think of uh, the River Jordan as being sort of just a, a small little river, but it's huge as well. It empties into the, Red, the Dead Sea. But since it's an inland sea, it doesn't overflow. The sea is never full. But it's more than generations coming and going. It's that we've forgotten earlier generations. We say, who cares about so-and-so? We all want our lives to count for something, but who is going to remember? Reality is that we have such short generational memories. Last Sunday, I was talking to a woman in our church who, she's probably in her late 30s, early 40s, and we were talking about the struggles that we're facing as a country, and she was very distraught and said to me, it feels like our country is just being destroyed. So I brought up Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is one of the most one of the foremost shapers of modern Christianity. He was a best-selling author, a reformed pastor in our own denomination, whose ministry reached around the world from Labrie in Switzerland to the classrooms of Covenant Seminary. I began to share with my friend all the amazing things that Schaefer taught, how to challenge our culture, uh, how to distinguish true truth, how to deal with government when Roe v. Wade was um, at the very front and center of everything we were looking at as a country, and how to love others when our culture was so messed up. And after she patiently listened to me go on and on about Francis Schaeffer, she said to me, really? I've never heard of him. What? You've never heard of Francis Schaeffer? I was about ready to go ballistic on her. I didn't. But generations come and go, don't they? I was listening to some of the pregame programming for the World Series this past week. And at one point, the announcer was going on and on about the Atlanta Braves players from the past. And he mentioned the great Hank Aaron. Well, I remember him. I knew him. And then he mentioned Warren Spahn, the Braves' greatest pitcher, apparently. I've never heard of him. And Eddie Matthews, one of the greatest third basemen in all of baseball, apparently. I've never heard of him. Generations come and go. And speaking of coming and going, if you visit St. Louis sometime, check out some of the more pricey homes in certain neighborhoods because you're going to find that they're tearing them down and they're building new, bigger, better, fancier houses and, of course, with mega price tags. And the great houses of the 60s and 70s and some even in the 80s, they were in great shape, I thought, but now no longer around. Generations come and go. Life under the sun can be very depressing. It can seem so pointless. Life under the sun can make life seem like such a waste. Life under the sun can feel like such a vain struggle at times from day to day. How utterly frustrating 
to live life from that perspective. But Koholeth also saw how life under the sun never is enough. Look at the second half of verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or in the NIV it puts it, the, the eye never has enough of seeing. Koholeth is not finished making his argument that everything is meaningless under the sun. He wants to show how everything we see and hear, everything we experience, is never enough. If Koholeth were speaking to us today and gave us a list of his top things that we are never satisfied with, it might look like this. We're never satisfied with the power of our computers. We need faster processing, more memory. We're never satisfied with our clothes. We need the latest Levi's, the newest Nikes. We're never satisfied with our cars. We need bigger engines and more technology. It's never enough. Koheleth might get kind of personal even and suggest that the kind of things that we're not content with, we're never satisfied with, for example, our looks. We're never satisfied with our relationships. We're never satisfied with our performance in life. It's never enough. So do you see why life under the sun is so unfulfilling and so meaningless? Our grandkids recently introduced us to one of the greatest musicals of all time, which we, had, we, we were oblivious to, The Greatest Showman. It's, our, it's the story of P.T. Barnum, who has a humble beginning, but rises to start Barnum's circus. And the circus features a bearded lady who can sing like crazy, a dwarf man who is transformed into the stature of a general, and an amazing trapeze artist. And they're all amazing, and, and it goes on and on. In fact, they become so successful that P.T. takes the circus on tour to meet Queen Victoria. And the plot thickens when he persuades Jenny Lind, a beautiful Swedish singer, to tour with him. And an attraction develops. Not good. Because P.T. is married and has two beautiful daughters. It's at this point that G Jenny Lind sings this super powerful, moving song, Never Enough. I want you to listen to the lyrics. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. That's the dead-end journey that Koheleth discovered. In chapters 2 through 11, he tries building projects. What he thought was wisdom. He tries work. He tries religion. He tries riches, sex, power. Knowledge, but nothing, nothing gave him meaning and purpose. It was never enough. 
living under the sun. What Koholeth found is that living under the sun is merely living a broken life in a fallen world. And of course, he would find no meaning and purpose. And that transitions us to my final point. Life above the sun is rich and satisfying. There is no mention of above the sun in Ecclesiastes. Well, at least not in those terms, in those exact words. But let's look at chapter 12, verse 13. There he says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. To live above the sun is to know your Creator and Sustainer. But that's not enough. To live above the sun is to have a relationship that fears Him and keeps His commandments. It's one of the most perplexing commands in the Bible. And it may make you even a little uncomfortable if you're not totally familiar with that. If He's your Father, how can there be any room for fear, you might ask? And yet it runs throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this, always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Or Proverbs 9, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, verse 17, and if you call on him as father and ju who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. But what does it mean? I think it's shorthand for the heartfelt worship of God, for who he is and what he's done. It's for those of us living in the new covenant, it's knowing that Christ Jesus is the Lord and Savior. He's died on the cross to save us from our sins. He's introduced us to a new life. And of course, it has nothing to do with being afraid of Him. Fearing God is all about driving us close to Him. It's a feeling of deep awe and respect for His greatness. It's feeling amazement and adoration. It's feeling a sense of wonderment and love, all wrapped up in the presence of God's glorious majesty. True fear of God is like childlike fear. Some of the Puritans used to call it filial fear. It was a combination of great awe and deep joy at the same time. It's when you really begin to understand who God is and what he's done. Lori and I were sharing with each other last week some of our favorite hymns. And one of mine is, And can it be that I should gain? And the refrain goes like this. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's really the question we should always be asking ourselves and then answering in the affirmative with the realization that the Lord placed 
his electing hand on me, on my life. And only because of his amazing love do I now have life and purpose and meaning. This is life above the sun. There is richness. It's a relationship with Jesus. There are relationships with other believers. There is a way to understand the world now and a way to cope with the things that the world throws at me. It's resting in the amazing love that he has for me. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And life above the sun is satisfying. Jesus meets the longings of our hearts. Jesus offers to us the pleasures that he has created for us in this life. The pleasure in understanding the world he's created. The pleasure in food and drink. The pleasure in friendship. The pleasure in marriage and family. And the pleasure in, and purpose in work. So what do we do with all this? There's a lot of stuff we've been talking about. What do we do with life under the sun and life above the sun? Let me suggest two things. The first is use people's search for meaning to reach their hearts. Here's what I mean. Our culture has a hard time of understanding sin. I don't know about you, but if you've, there have been times when I've tried to do that very thing and people like are glazed in their eyes because they don't understand the first thing about sin. You talk to them about what's wrong uh, or what they've done to break God's commandments. They don't, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. And the phrase that often, that often comes back is, well, that may mean something, that may work for you, but that's not doesn't mean anything for me. It may be true for you, but it's not true for me. You see, our culture is full of relativists. We're individualistic freedom lovers to the core. And people don't understand how their life, or people do understand how their life doesn't work if you really press them. And they get how life is, fr is frustrating and your workmates and your friends, they'll, they'll realize just how getting a paycheck doesn't equal a sense of purpose and value. I'm not saying don't tell them about their sinful condition. I'm saying use the language of Koheleth to tell them about their sinful condition. Tell them about your journey. Your journey to finding at this point and this point in your life how you re reached a dead end and you experienced frustration and you experienced weariness and life didn't make sense to you at that point in time. I think they'll hear that. And secondly, fearing God will make you a person of integrity. Nehemiah was that kind of person. Nehemiah 5 verse 15 says, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the, over the people. 
But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Even though the leadership in that day were taking advantage of their people, by taking advantage of their authority, their positions of authority, Nehemiah did not do that. Why? Because he feared God. He was a person of integrity. He knew God's character. He knew that God was righteous, and he served that righteous God. He knew God's covenant love. And Nehemiah placed his faith in that covenant God to forgive him of his sins, to give him life, and to give him holiness and made him a man of integrity. It was Nehemiah along with Ezra who led the spiritual revival of that day. And together they directed the political and religious restoration of the Jews in their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. Another person comes to mind, a reformer, John Knox. He too led a revival of sorts. We know it today as the Reformation of Scotland. It was a time when you needed great courage and great boldness and integrity to stand for your beliefs. But Knox not only stood for his beliefs, he shook his country. It was said of John Knox that he feared no man because he feared God. Great courage goes with great integrity. That's one of the reasons why all of Scotland changed its allegiance to Rome to become the Presbyterian Church of Scotland only one year after Knox started to work full-time in Scotland. People said of his preaching, others lop off branches, but this man, this man strikes at the roots. So let me ask you, where are the Nehemiahs? Where are the John Knoxes today? Because we're living in an unparalleled day of mistrust. Americans don't trust their political leaders. We don't trust our media. We don't trust social media. We don't trust business leaders, even scientists and educators. We don't even trust our spiritual leaders. This call to fear God is a call to be a Nehemiah and an ox to your friends at school, to your school board, to your boss, to your neighbor that you see every day or don't see. It's a call to fear God even before your family who can see in you that integrity. Because you can have And God will grant you that kind of integrity, that kind of mindset, because you have great awe and you have great deep joy. Because God can and will use you in incredible ways. Fear God and live above the sun. Amen.